Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. More about Audible later on in the show. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 40. I am your host, Mr. Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a, sh- what a show, man. Come on. <laughs> we have Portly by Laurel Winter. Flash Fiction by Daniel Swartz. Main Fiction tonight comes from Mr. Lawrence Santuro. We have our first in our instalment of The Fiction Crawler by Matthew Sanborn-Smith. And if you remember, I kind of put out a shout, you know, and I says, if anyone wants to, you know, have a little go at writing an article or doing an audio, especially <laughs> writing an article, doing an audio article for the Starship Sofa. If you've got something interesting that you do or you're keen on, you know, and you think it might fit the bill, drop us an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Let us know, you know, and we'll get it on the show if it's interesting. You'd be surprised how many people really enjoy these kind of little fact articles. So yes, look out for Mr. Matthew Sanborn-Smith's article. Now I just want to say a couple of things before we we get into the show. I just want to say a big thank you to Mark Fraunfelder. Now Mark, apologies if I'm saying your surname wrong, Fraunfelder. Mark is one of the co-founders, and I didn't know this, one of the co-founders of Boing Boing. And while I was on holiday in Italy, sunning myself, Mark wrote this lovely review of, remember the, the show that came out, the Ted Chang show? Well, we got mentioned on Boing Boing there, and it's the second time Mark's done that. You know, and put a picture of Sofa on there as well. 
So Mark, honestly, hats off. And I didn't kind of, and I was just looking, kind of looking through Mark's website there. He's done some, you know, co-founder of, it must have been like a magazine called Boing Boing First that kind of kicked it off. And then he, he co-founded the blog. But he's into, he's got all sorts kind of kicking around. He's got this book that I'm kind of keen on even just trying to get my hands on. Rule the web, how to do anything and everything on the internet. Better, faster, easier. I suppose if there's one guy who can probably do that, you know, it'd probably Mark with Boing Boing there, they certainly get the people over. So Mark, yes, thank you very much. Just wanted to make sure you, you got that. I will certainly return the favour and put a link on the site so everyone can go over and check out Mark's site. And I want to also to mention, I'll mention it again after this as well, but Diane Severson, our narrator, Diane's doing the poetry today, narrating the poetry. I got an email off Diane saying that her CD, Silence, is now on digital download, and you can get it from CD Baby, iTunes, Napster, and I actually didn't even know Napster was still going there, and a host of others that kind of sell the MP3s. So please, if you want to, check out Diane's work. You know, there'll be links on the site as well. And Diane is going to do this poetry, so we'll kick off with a little bit of poetry. Judy Resnick Brushes Her Teeth by Laurel Winter Dr. Judith A. Resnick, born April 5, 1949, in Akron, Ohio, died January 28, 1986, aboard the Challenger. She moves through zero-G as if she grew there, her hair a dark, wild flower. She was meant to dance in space, to make us dream. Girls and women with hair only partially tamed by gravity and atmosphere, we could live in space. Our supper tumbling in the air, exuberant morsels waltzing with fork. Watching her on the five-story screen, 7.1 miles from her launch point, we grow two inches, our spines lengthening, freed from the pull of the planet for 37 minutes. The doors to earth open. Lights recreate us, not quite as we were before we entered the theater. Exit to the right, Hold the handrails. Watch your step. Now Judy will brush her teeth again, plant the seed of space in a new group. One minute, thirteen seconds into another mission, her flight ended. But she still dances in space, accompanied by toothbrush and fork, her hair a cloud of possibility. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Laurel Winder. Laurel, thank you very much for that. What a, that's a... A quite a moving little piece of work there. You know, sometimes you actually don't need loads of words to get over something so powerful and so meaningful, and that certainly is. And Diane, Diane, thank you so much. Don't forget, everyone, check out Diane's CD, digital download. Fantastic. So next week, come on to our Flash Fiction, and today's Flash Fiction is by Daniel Swartz. Little heads up for Daniel. Daniel Swartz lives in Binghamton, New York, USA, where he studies religion and philosophy while also working. Previous writing credits include award-winning study of crisis cult behavior for the New York Conference on Asian Studies. He enjoys retro punk of all kinds and the new weird and is honored to release his first published work of fiction on the Starship Sofa. Please let him know what you think of this work at drkaboom at gmail.com. <laughs> So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents When the Whistle Blows by Daniel Swartz. 
Incorrect paper size. Damn it. I bend down, open up the paper drawer in the copier, slide the adjuster a little, close the drawer, stand up. Incorrect paper size. Damn it. I bend down, open up the paper drawer again, take out some paper, push down the stack that's left to make sure the sensor caught, close the drawer, stand up. Incorrect paper size. Damn it. I bend down, open the drawer. I put the paper I just took out back in. Push the stack down again. Adjust the adjuster once more. Close drawer, stand up. Incorrect paper size. Damn it. I bend down, pull at the drawer. It opens one third of the way. I pull harder. It'll go no further. Stand up. Incorrect paper size. Oh, I am paper jam. Okay, enough is enough. I go across the hall, waving my card at the access panel. It beeps. I open the door to the corporate offices and cross the room to my desk, where I pick up the letter opener. I turn, face set with determination, and walk purposely back to the copy room. I glanced one more time at the status screen, hoping desperately for a change that will stop me from doing what I'm about to do. Incorrect paper size. Paper jam. I sigh. Oh, well. I place my hand above the copier, raise the letter opener, and in a single swift motion, stab myself in the hand. Blood wells up from the heel of my palm. I gaze into its crimson glow and mouth the appropriate words, my will fixed unerringly on the beating of my heart. A shape with neither angles nor curves blossoms out of the hole in my hand, and a voice like an echo without noise whispers to me, I come, Denethag, fiend of the great abyss, servant of vice and corruption, scion of hatred and greed. How may I serve you, master? I point at the machine with my good hand. The copy is broken. I need you to fix it. The shape stares at me with the space I assume the eyes are in. It turns its not-quite-a-head to look at the copier and looks back at me. Dude, you've got to be joking. Right. That's why I shed my own blood and called you from the nether realms. Uh, because I'm joking. You're a cop here? That's why you summoned me? Yeah. I need to get these done before three. This is totally beneath me. A waste of my vast infernal powers. They're mine to waste. I'm your master. Did you try restarting the machine? Twice. Switching paper trays? There's only legal size in the other one. Th there's a service number right here. You can't just call them. That'll take all day. Besides, didn't you work for a copy repair guy for a while? Yeah, like three years ago. There's no telling how far they've advanced. It's a copier, not the space shuttle. How much can it have changed? Look, just because you don't understand it does not mean it's easy. 
You telling me you can't do it? I never said that. Am I to believe that a fiend of the great abyss, servant of yetta yetta yetta, can't fix a simple human machine? I never said that at all. I just meant that I don't want to do it. Funny thing about being a servitor, being Denethog. What you want isn't my concern. I'll pluck out your eyes and feast on your entrails. I push my will against his rage. I can feel my blood pound in my ears. If I back down, things will get ugly. You'll fix the freaking copier. I'm not in the mood for this, Denethog. Just do it. Denethog grumbles like chainsaws mating. He slithers into the copier, and moments later the machine rocks. The tortured infant scream of gears and rollers combining with the crumpling and violent ejection of wadded paper. Finally, after an agonizing moment, the ruckus stops. I glance at the status screen. Press start to continue. Sweet. I press start. My copy continues where it had left off. Mike from auditing pokes his head in. Trouble. Paper jam. Got my demon to fix it. Yours fixes copiers. Yeah. Nice. All copyright is Daniel Swartz. Thank you, Daniel, very much. And narration today is by MCL Studios. Martin, thank you, sir, very much. Got that at the last minute yesterday. What a star. Thank you, sir. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And I'll just give you a little heads up on kind of some of the new releases that are out there in Audible. Mars Bound by Joe Haldeman, a brand new standalone saga of family travelling to Mars and the unknown. You've got Stork and the Unicorn and Stork and the Vampire, both by Mike Resnick. It took more than 20 years to write the sequel to Mike Resnick's first Mallory book, and fans of The Dresden Files will love this wise-cracking paranormal investigator. Then you have Polaris by Jack McDivitt, part of the same Alex Benedict series as the Nebula Award-winning Seeker. And to give you a heads up, my latest book from Audible.com. I am listening to Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s Sirens of Titan, and it is fantastic. It's just, it's jumping all over the place. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not a straight linear read, and it's just, it's mind-blowing, to be quite honest. It's got everything, and I'll let you know what it's like when I've finished totally, but I'm really enjoying that one. So next we come on to the new monthly article by Matthew Sanborn-Smith. And like I say, I've been talking with Matthew for a while, just kind of pin something down to try and get him on the show and get him, you know, just like a regular kind of slot. Because I, I knew he could, he had some great ideas, you know, and he was, he's been helping out with the sofa. And then he came back with this fiction crawler idea, and I thought, that's, that's it, that's the one. So basically what Matt's doing is he's just trolling the internet, seeing what free fiction is out there. So, Matt, what is out there? 
Hello, all you sofanauts and sofanets. I'm here today with a new feature for the sofa that makes me think, why hasn't someone else come up with this? It's recommendations, it's fiction, it's free, it's online. Such a thing was made for us. Welcome to a spot I call the Fiction Crawler. Tell those people who say that science fiction is dying to take a walking tour of the Atlantic. The Webiverse is spilling over with great stories just waiting there for our scooping hands and hungry maws. Yes, it's also spilling over with crappy stories, but that's why for I am here. I'm making it my job on the sofa to read through lots of that garbage, find the gems, and present them to you in little velvety hinged boxes. Now, the New Yorker isn't the place you'd expect the likes of us to go sniffing around for a good time, but like a good flea marketer, I like to check in all the dark corners of the web. Sometimes you'll find a rusty cheese sandwich, sometimes you'll find this. The story's title is I Bought a Little City by Donald Barthelmay, and the title sets it up. A man buys Galveston, Texas, the whole thing and many of the people in it, and then he calls the shots. He doesn't go crazy, at least not at first. What happens is not entirely out of the realm of possibility, but is odd enough to border on the land of Surreal. And as you'll learn, it's a tree-lined border. The most appealing thing for fans of this show is that it's on audio. Yes, the New Yorker's website has a whole fiction podcast pack of stories under the heading The New Yorker Out Loud. You not only get an audio story, but it's read to you by a second New Yorker author and discussed with the New Yorker's fiction editor. The stories are generally short, and the discussion really adds to the listener's interest in the work itself, at least for this listener. The whole thing, discussion and all, runs under 18 minutes. Check it out. Although they're the bastion of mainstreaminess, you may find some other stuff there that you like. I know I have. Now, I went through a few stories in my travels that were more fanciful than science fiction, and just so I didn't have to contribute to that tiresome science fiction is dead drone, I purposely sought out some sciency goodness just for you. The first story I found did the trick for me. It was a story called Ex Machina by Margaret Ronald in Strange Horizons, one of the premier online magazines. Since the fall of Ellen Datlow's sci-fiction over at sci-fi.com, Strange Horizons is the story house you most often hear mentioned after someone talks about the big three. Ex Machina feels like it might be a fantasy in the very opening, but we quickly learn that those peasant-like people fighting for survival in the ice and snow are actually the techies of their age, uber-repair people known as tinkers, who have up and left society as they know it after receiving a call from God. On the way to God's house, they receive shelter and aid from armed and uniformed men known as the Guardians, whose base is filled with all sorts of broken stuff. What I initially liked about this story is that the Tinkers have a hard time leaving broken things alone. They have to fix things, like an obsessive-compulsive needs to clean a spot on the wall. In a way, they reminded me of the Modi engineers from the Moten God's Eye, another cool subculture, or caste in their case. So where's the conflict? You've got people with broken things, you've got other people who love to fix broken things. This should be a real love fest. Well, as you may have guessed from the weapons and the uniforms, the Guardians might not all be sweeties, and they might have something really big in that base of theirs. Really big and really broken. Well, a skate pod couldn't get him, even a sofa couldn't get him, but Solaris has him. That's right, it's Stephen Baxter and his Hugo-nominated story Last Contact at SolarisBooks.com. Either things were working on some weird plane of reality in this story, or there was something seriously wrong with the science here. 
you have to assume that a hotshot like Baxter knows what he's doing with very basic science. So what was this about? I don't know. There was something going on with the ability of Earthbound characters being able to witness events hundreds and thousands of light years away that I just did not understand. But I'm not here to criticize. I can suspend my disbelief as well as the next person. Even if the weird science in the story was all a big mistake, I have to, have to, have to recommend this story. Wow, was all I could think when I finished it. What a sad and powerful and horrifying story this was. I'm not giving away much by telling you that in this tale, not just the world, but the universe itself is coming to an end. You find this out early on. Watching the characters in the world dealing with six months to live is something as real and as unreal as it might feel if it were happening to us. One of my favorite science fiction series is David Brin's Uplift series, Go Streaker Go! It tells the story of humanity modifying dolphins and chimps and gorillas to make them sentient and fully participating members of our civilization. Earth's sentient species then have to fight to carve out a place in a larger galactic society in which everyone else and their uncles has more technological and military power than we do. I do like an underdog story. As some of you might know, the story isn't limited to six novels. Bryn has also written a handful of short stories that take place in the Uplift universe. You can find his story, Aficionado, at davidbrin.com. It's a good story on its own, and you don't have to be familiar with the Uplift novels to enjoy it, but I think Uplift fans will get a little something extra from it. It's set earlier than any other story in that universe, and we get to see Earth's Uplift project in its embryonic stage, when it has collapsed almost immediately after it has begun. It also gives us a glimpse of humanity at that stage of Bryn's future, well off and aimless, before galactic contact, and trying to find itself in the years before it would begin a struggle on the greatest scale it had ever known. Charles Coleman Finlay gets two stories in this little sound space I have here. Firstly, his story Footnotes gets a mention not because of its power. You'll get that with the second one. Footnotes gets a mention because of its format. I've been interested in new ways to tell a story ever since I read about Harlan Ellison trying to write The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World as what he called a circular story. It didn't seem terribly different from a traditional story to me, but that may have been because I had the advantage of reading years of stories that had come after it, and had been influenced by it, before I ever read The Beast. It mattered little. What interested me was the concept of looking for new ways to tell a story and the fact that he had made an attempt. And it certainly wasn't his only attempt. By the by, if it sounds like I'm running circles around Finlay's story with this digression, pat yourself on the head. Footnotes is less than 800 words long. If I spend more than a sentence describing the story itself, I'll have pretty much told the story, and I don't want to deprive you of its coolness. Suffice it to say, Footnotes is told in, you guessed it, Footnotes. For all its brevity, it does demand a little something of the reader, and the tiniest of clues can reward you with a glimpse of a much bigger picture. With each new way of telling a story, a new one is lost to our future selves, but let's hope someone out there has an idea or two that will break ground yet again, because little treasures like this can be so much fun. Originally, I wasn't even going to mention this second Finlay story. I'd read it months ago when John Joseph Adams recommended it to one and all on his blog, but I went and said that I wasn't mentioning footnotes for its power, because in my little head I was comparing it to this other story and that other story would not leave my brain pan, no matter how deeply I dug into my ear. The story is called The Rape Worm, and it's about as pleasant as you'd imagine a story by that title to be. You can find it in a PDF magazine called Noctum Aeternus at michaelnost.com. 
Noctime Turnus was a horror mag that only lasted one issue, but thank goodness for the internet where whatever disaster might befall a publisher, nothing ever has to go out of print. Whatever ups and downs a creator or an editor might face in his or her career, he or she can always point to that link and say, look there, you want to read some good stuff, go there and it will be there as long as someone's paying the light bill. I'll be honest, I'm not actually big on horror. It's a downer and real life has enough downers that I don't need to seek out more misery, but I do dip my head into that rancid water every now and again to taste what's happening, especially on a strong recommendation. Besides, the rapeworm does contain enough of a science fictional element that I don't mind being seen in that other club. With the rapeworm, Charles Coleman Finlay has crafted a tale that makes me want to crawl into a closet and throw a blanket over my head, surrounded by my loved ones. It's the story of an alien invasion that makes you want to go begging for the comfort of H.G. Wells' genocidal Martians. A man and his two boys head for the hills while that invasion is well underway. Something passed over the earth and the parasitic rapeworms rain down on humankind. Our hero is running from the worms, but also from the people infected by the worms. When you're infected by the worms, bad things happen. There's martial law back in civilization, and out here it's every man for himself. It very much has an apocalyptic feel. So you've got War of the Worlds, and stack on top of that Alas Babylon and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But you know, it's really unfair of me to burden this original tale with the weight of comparison to the classics. But comparisons will happen as you try to gain some footing in the middle of this horrible situation, and try to make sense of what's happening around you. Besides some serious gore, pile on I Am Legend and the Screwfly solution while you're at it. The Rapeworm deserves a place among these stories. It will hit you as hard as they did, and someday you'll be comparing newer stories to it. That's it for me, folks. Please let us know what you think of this spot for future shows, and enlarge those fonts for your bleary eyes. You've got a lot of reading to do. Matt, you're cooking on gas. Thank you very much for that. Yes, keep them up, because that is fantastic. I will put all links to what Matthew's been talking about today on the, on the site, on the main site. Pop over there and have a look, you know, so at least you can go over there and get them and grab them and have a read of them. Next we come on to the main fiction of the night. And actually, I've got a little intro to the fiction as well, so that's a little kind of bonus as well. The main fiction tonight is by Lawrence Santuro. I'll give you a little heads up on Lawrence. Chicagoan Lawrence Santuru has been writing darkly fantastic tales since he was five. As an associate producer of the syndicated television series Hide and Seek, Larry wrote, directed and supervised the production during the comedy mystery show's first season. In 2001, the Horror Writers Association nominated his novella God Screamed and Screamed, Then I Ate Him for a Bram Stoker Award, and his Stoker recommended Catchin received an honourable mention in Ellen Datlow's 17th Annual Best Fantasy and Horror Anthology in 2003. So Many Tiny Mouths, which is this story you're going to hear now, was cited in the anthology in the 18th edition. Just North of Nowhere is his first novel. His novella, At Angels 16, appeared in the 2008 Dark and Deadly Valley. In 2009, two other novellas will be published. Wind Shadows in the anthology Aim for the Head and Drink for the Thirst to Come in the Shared World anthology Nations of Ash, scheduled for late 2009. Now it was Larry that also, and I'm very, very privileged to get as well, which will be coming in one of the future shows, 
In 2002, his audio adaption of Gene Wolfe's The Tree Is My Hat, featuring best-selling author Neil Gaiman. The production garnered him his second Stoker nod. So we have got that actual play coming up in a couple of weeks' time, probably. And I got Lawrence, Larry, <laughs> hello Larry, I got Larry to kind of do an intro and an outro for that as well. And that just is, it's going to be probably one of the high pluses of Starship Sofa. So please look out for that coming soon. But for now, I will leave you in the capable hands of Lawrence Santuro. Hi, this is Larry Santoro. I wrote the story you just heard or are about to hear, So Many Tiny Mouths. And I just thought I'd give you some idea of what was behind the writing of this piece. Uh, I did a short article on it when the story was first published in the United States in an online publication now, alas, gone, called Feral Fiction. And it just explains a bit about the Pine Barrens and a little bit about me and why I wrote this story. If it's of any interest to you, here it is. To begin with, we need to know a little bit about me. I was born in Pennsylvania, and this begins in about 1950-something or another. Uh, summers, my parents and I used to hop into the old man's green over cream 53 Bel Air hardtop and point the grill toward the pre-Donald Trump Atlantic City. We'd... Uh, make the Delaware crossing into Jersey on the Chester Bridgeport ferry. And about two hours later, our first half dozen layers of winter skin would have roasted into a kind of sweaty peel. And we'd have yanked a year's fillings out of our head with steel piers, saltwater taffy. But before becoming beach blanket brisket, the, uh, we always had to cross inland Jersey, of course. I used to spend those 70-plus non-air-conditioned miles in the old man's Chevy's back seat, meditating on horrors like undertow or on skewering my bare feet on the beach's first horseshoe crabs of summer. And being thus occupied, it wasn't until years later that I noticed that most of Jersey was trees, and our, our highway to the shore was just a corridor of pines. Later, I learned that those 70-some-odd miles, uh, the whole of central Jersey, in fact, was a sort of geopolitical entity called the Pine Barrens, as explained by my elder and much smarter cousin Fred, who eventually became an FBI agent. Uh, the Barrens were a dark forest land inhabited by strange six-fingered folk who lived in wildwood caves and who prayed to odd, grubby gods and made their own gas from pig shit. And they ate lost travelers. They called themselves pineys. Much later, I made a now long-gone, thankfully, documentary film about the region called Where the Sun Never Shines. We won't think about that too much. And I found the Pineys, sadly, to be plain old garden-variety Americans, and I'll let your personal demons inform whatever image that concept conjures. But Pineys are independent-minded people. They don't care to be fussed over about where they live. They do a lot for themselves, things most of us gave up doing a generation or more ago. Uh, that about pig shit and gas, by the way, it is true. Uh, 
Their tales are curious and spooky. Well, of course they are. Their, their world is a deep forest and truck-wide sand trails. It's got small streams, cedar swamps, abandoned bogs, the smell of decay and sphagnum moss. It's quite wonderful. Off highways, uh, a stranger to the region navigates by compass, odometer, and a geodetic survey map clutched tightly in his hand. Places dot these maps called things like Ong's Hat, Goshen, Hog Wallow, and silence lives in these invisible towns. The sense of the once was and never will be just hangs in those clearings. And the shallow hollows that once were home, stores, and places. Uh, well, any stranger who's arrived at one of those named spots in the map and who stands at a, say, a five-point wideness in the trail swings his eyes four ways into that old, old darkness around, feels the lurk of the strange behind him or ahead. Well, someday I'll get that all right. There are economic, political, and social reasons why the barons, despite squatting at the beating concrete heart of the megalopolis, remains a green and relatively human-free and unimproved place. These reasons are not part of this tale's fetching, though, so the point is, I like the area. I admired the people, and despite the arrogance of youth, I actually learned a little bit about them. And another thing I learned, it's a very hard place to get right. My film, for example, never caught it. Uh, later, I set another story there. It's called Veterans. Later still, having sold two screenplays, bing, bing, like that, I uh, adapted my story for film, but Veterans, the movie, remains unproduced, and worse, it was never sold. One supremely good writer I know set a story there. He missed it. One of the episodes of The Sopranos, one of the best episodes they did was set there. The producers, uh, city-bred wise guys, though, they, they were money on as strangers in a strange land, but their film, The Barons, shot in some generic woodland with no spirit of the pines, lost the chill of that place. When I was asked to submit to an anthology of tales on a theme of, I, I think it was fang and claw, fang and talon, something like that, the pines somehow entered my head again, and I, I guess I just wanted to get another shot at getting it right. So, okay, I thought the, the salient features of the barrens are trees, sand, and what could I do? Trees with claws was a kind of cliche, but sand with teeth. Maybe. Anyway, the anthology editors passed on so many tiny mouths. They were right to. The version that I produced back then focused on the tourists from Philly. I guess I was still sitting in the backseat of my dad's Chevy. So here it is. Rethought. So many tiny mouths. I got out and listened to some of the people I halfway knew when I shot that forgotten film down there. Ghosts. And I hope I got them right. Oh, by the way, Earl Suey, the coot through whose eyes we watch the world end, he's fiction. Just a coincidence. No, really. Just a coincidence. Enjoy the story. Thank you.
So Many Tiny Mouths by Lawrence Santoro When the wind freshened, the mouths climbed the sky, played among the trees. Earl Suey wrote, They eat top-down, well as bottom-up, don't matter none. Earl sat in his shack, writing down, like always, like once, like long ago, when he was barely a coot, back when the government claimed men were going to the moon, the whole damn world snackered by that bullshit. Cap Haney, too. Earl saved that newspaper. Still, he had the damn thing somewhere. That was years ago, and Earl was writing even then. Now Earl watched the dark creep. The sand drifted, rolling in dog-high waves around his shack. Dan by sand and dark,' he wrote. "'Forever dark, coming.' "'Didn't matter,' he figured. "'Figured the damn mouths couldn't see. "'Even though they got one of my eyes,' he swigged a little beam, and added, "'Ha, ha!' His eye-hole itched and hurt at the same time. So many mouths, even blind, all they had to do was open and bite, bite so quick, so often, something would be there by and by, something to eat. Blind mouths against a half-blind man makes an even fight, he wrote on the Tom's River Sentinel. Even, he said to no one, laughing, even nothing, when the end is sure, he wrote that down. Earl always wrote things down. Well, sometimes he didn't. But he had years of sentinels saved, saved to write on, marking over the damn gray print lies with black crayon, his wide lines of truth. Always something gotta kill you, he wrote over a story about the president and water someplace. Now there's a truth in that damn paper, he said, and swigged again. He listened. The air clacked, clicked, hissed. A dry rain of sand sifted over the shack's tin roof when the wind died. When it blew, it scoured roof, walls, everything. Gobble, hobble, hobble, bobble, he said, when the sand brushed the window. Sweet nothings, he said. Sand making love whispers to the glass. Soon his windows were gone. Turned, he wrote. All my window glass turned to sand. He wrapped the plastic tarp around him tighter, hugged the bottle of beam closer to him. He wrote, The noises in the air where they eat are... He listened to catch the sound. And then, by and by, he wrote, The sound like something, not squirrel, scratching louder in under the eaves. That's its eating noises. Then, putting on paper the sounds in the air, Nick, 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 he wrote. A million Nicks is night tonight. There were no squirrels now. No squirrels in the barrens, he wrote. Pretty soon no barrens, then no squirrel everywhere. That was an afterthought. Couldn't do without squirrel anyways. The air was cool and his breath dripped down inside the plastic he'd wrapped round himself. That cold day in July everyone talks of, he wrote. Ha, <laughs> ha! The mouths had come with the Fourth of July. He wrote, Everyone missed the end of the world. 
Then he added, Cap Haney, Buster Leak, too. Too much fun, I guess, <laughs> howling at the moon. The moon. <laughs> there had been a picture. Made him laugh. He'd cut it from the Sentinel oh, years ago. He showed it around over by Chatsworth. The damn picture had the astronauts standing on the moon in their suits. And there it was, the damn moon in the sky of the damn picture. Now, how can they be on the moon when the moon's in the sky there, he said. You answer me that. Folks, real folks, they just shook their heads. Good catch, Earl, they said. Cap Haney, he looked. Damn, Earl, he said. That's them practicing in their spacesuits there. They're out in the desert. You see, it says them astronauts practicing for when they are on the moon, for crying out loud. Sure, that's the moon in the picture. That's where they're heading. Christ, Earl, it says right there. Earl, he shook his head and saved the damn picture. If they're on the moon, how can the moon be in their sky? He wrote it. Still made him laugh. Cap Haney, <laughs> The end of the world started with the folks from Filthy Delphia. The family stopped on the day, Fourth of July itself, canoe strapped to their roof and lost. They bought a couple five gallons of gas from his dipping barrel, and he'd pointed their way to Papoose Creek. Earl's old hunter-dog had ignored them. When their car had come crunching up the sand trail off the county road, the old bastard raised his head and sang a squeaky bass roof. And when the car stopped, he growled, and when he saw their faces, uh, he just fell asleep, farting. The young dog was off on the causeway in the wood. He didn't bother homing to, to see what the hell was up with these folk. You help us uh, with a little gas there, can you? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I called. Service stations closed over in... Uh, the man turned to the little woman. At Chatsworth, was it? The woman bent to the map, crinkled in her lap. Buster Leak, uh, too goddamn rich to work holidays, Earl said. He squinted at the car folk. 
Yeah, us pineys, we got to take our fun too, you know. A ton of plastic camp shit. Forget map or sense, these folks were good and lost. Daddy's sausage hands were sweat tight on the wheel. Pretty fingernails, shiny. Uh, we're looking for, uh, is it uh, the, the wading river? Yeah, the wading. And uh, um, it's the, uh, the Papoose Creek. Uh, Daddy said it like he didn't want to say it. You you heard of uh, Papoose Creek? The woman leaned over to look at Earl. A white strip of sun grease ran like war paint down her nose. She yelled slow like talking to a damn Mexican. We hear about Jersey's pine barrens in Philadelphia. There is so much history here. <laughs> she clicked her tongue. We want you know, want the kids to see be before, you know, we want them to see the pines before, yeah, before Capaney cuts them down, rolls out them little bitty houses here to sell, Earl said. The lady smiled. The kids sulked in the back seat, looking nowhere. Earl started. He gave him shit for a little spun tails, charged a pretty penny for the gas. Penny? <laughs> Hell, Earl charged what they call an arm and leg for a short five gallons of dewy low test because Buster closed the Baron's shell for independence. <laughs> Son of a bitch, he was good for something. After dipping and shitting him, Earl pointed them to Papoose Crick. Now that papoose bottom water, <laughs> that is good for what ails you, <laughs> he winked at the man. It makes you strong, if you know what I mean. And then he looked at the woman. She snapped a picture of Earl with, a, with her little yellow camera box from the store. They paid, and they were gone, like that. Earl was going to tell them, Watch out for that Jersey devil now. He carries off folk in the night, his hundred teeth like needles clacking. He'd written down that story years before. He could have warned them to watch their damn campfire, for Christ's sake. Could have said, It might look swampy wet out there, but it ain't. Dry for Christ knows how long. I don't want my shack and me burned through your careless ways. I built this myself. Oh, Christ, now. I built it back when Cap Haney was a little shit back in the damn Depression. I've been here that long. Cap getting richer, me getting older. He would have told them about Cap, his damn bogs, the nigger day laborers he's jobbed in and the seasons. But the damn people, they just... The damn people drove off. The car kicked a rooster tail of sand as it slewed onto the trail and into the pines. The old dog slept. Earl laughed. <laughs> then he kept watch through the back window. Evening on, Earl leaned against the glass, looking, looking toward the creek, watching for sparks, the telltale glow of run-wild flame in the sky above the forest. Night sneaked from under the trees, across the sand, between him and the woods. Tree shadow touched his wall, and dark crawled over him and onto the shack, over Haney's bogs. Then night was everywhere. Night stayed day hot. The sky was pale and watery. Of course, that could have been his damn eyes. Still, all he saw of earth and heaven that last night of the world. 
was the forest and a few stars wiggling in heat. That and the thing. If there had been no folk in the woods, Earl would have sat his porch, taken the breeze off Haney's bogs. He would have rocked, listening to the crick crack and the buzz of bugs and the wing moan of swallows as they fed. He could have sat breathing pine wood scent through his own, and the dogs stinks those familiar reeks mixed with the nearby whiff of frog, toad, decaying water life bubbling up from the bogs and the faraway mossy sphagnum breath of cedar swamp steeping in the deep wood. He could have had a good night, July the 4th, gone to bed and died stupid like the world was going to. He didn't. He was watching out that damn bunch in the woods, and because he was, he saw the thing. He saw it come, almost burned his eyes out white, like sunlight screaming its set black shadows climbing the insides of his shack. He heard the coming thing fry the air, felt it whomp the ground. For seconds the shack shivered on its stone posts. The wind sucked out of him, then deep thunder boxed his ears. The damn air punched his chest a second later and rolled across him, wiggled the flab of his face. The old hunter-dog went, went standing suddenly wild, looking around, singing. Best write that down. <laughs> what do you say? Earl said, and he wrote. Stars shooting back, he wrote. Fourth July... The stars shoot back. A big come. A big come. He figured the Philly folk were gone. Found later he was wrong about that. Figured the thing had whomped down by Ong's Hat Cross, where the Ford sisters had their shack. That was that for them, he figured. It was too bad, too. He liked those Ford girls. <laughs> Earl ran outside to look for fire sign. Nothing but the glowing wake across the sky. He listened for the fire trucks to come, shouting out of Chatsworth. Nothing. <laughs> Too much independence fun, <laughs> he figured. All your money, Cap Haney, and <laughs> you don't even care about... You don't even care about... It took him a half minute. You don't even care about them poor people, he figured out loud. In a few minutes, the trail of the fallen star was a blue smear down the sky. After a good half hour, there were still no trucks, no men. Well, up to me, he said. He waddled the hundred feet from his shack to the woods, not to it normally, but tonight, tonight it was an uphill mile. Hell, a hard two-mile each step sank him to his ankles. Each step he shoved backward in giving earth. It was like wading through a running tide. The black forest wall rose ahead, rose and whispered. He had never been afraid, not ever, not of critter, woods, nor night. Little shit and grown man Earl Suey was pine-born and fearless. Now... The forest was a stranger. The wood whispered unfriendly in a tongue he'd never heard. What was different? Something changed, but what the hell he didn't know. He'd write down when he did. 
twenty steps into the forest, and the trees folded shut behind. The world, Shack, Boggs, and Chatsworth, all was gone. Now it was him and the sand sweeping his feet. Overhead, the pine boughs were black fingers against the blue ghost light of the star's trail. Even that soft light was spreading into the big night. Out of the forest came a ripple. Something breathed across him, and the world rumbled, rising and sinking, like a john boat riding a tidal swell. Earl's toes tried to grip the sand through his boots. Knight's breath was cold. It was bad. A, a smell he didn't like wrapped him. From down the trail, a scream squeaked his ears. Wasn't man nor woman. No animal he'd heard, not even being eaten, living, made that noise. Something, though, something clamped in pain was down ahead, dying. He tried to grab hold, remember the noise, the stink, for writing down later. Too much new was happening, though. The, the path to Papoose Creek, a way he'd walked since the Great Depression, had become something else. Night's heat was gone. Christ, he, he should have brought his damn lamp. No sooner had it washed him, though, than the stink, the sound, was gone. When a branch, he should have known, bit his ankle. When reach creepers damn near snared his legs. When a heaved root nearly tumbled him onto the bog wash, he stopped dead. Chill sweat covered him. He heard it then, and this time he could not forget. He hadn't run since he was a boy. Men didn't run. He ran. It stayed. It followed him. Back to his shack, his hair stood wet with damp and chills. It climbed his bones. He scribbled down. Black sky, he added. Black forever, everywhere, everywhere. Something different. That was something he felt that was true, but he didn't know why. And then he did. The difference is, it is... Different, he wrote that down. Before, everything was all the same, all the same forever. Trees, paths, places, all directions the same. Now, not. Now, all, all is different. From his back window, he looked at the black forest, at the white sand path that led there. Everywhere was difference. Everywhere he listened. And he listened to the night. Even silence had a stranger's voice, and from the pines came the noises where the silence ate. He woke when something thumped the shack's ass end. The glass he leaned on bumped his head. Outside, day was bright. It wasn't hard sun, but fuzzy bright. Fog had come while he slept, and the shack was wrapped in gray. Another something whomped the wall. He laid his hand against cool glass. The fog on the pane shoved back. His hand shook. I can't see shit, he told the old dog. 
The hand he pressed to the glass was veined red and blue, thick-skinned, crossed with scars and stories. That was the same. At least that. The nails were yellowed, thick, chipped, dirty. After so much night writing, his right thumb and first three fingers were black with crayon wax. The pinky edge of his hand was gray with news ink. Like always, those hands were truthful. And now they shook. They shook, damn them. Another something screamed as it whomped his wall. He'd had it. Onto the porch, Earl, the old dog. The shack might as well be hung a mile in the air. He couldn't see earth, not even the foot of his own damn steps. He and the dog stood there, and they sniffed. To Earl's thinking, morning smelled a little like fire, a little, not a lot. What the hell, he thought. I'm near ninety. Near ninety and afraid, Christ! Something else whomped the back of the shack. A big flapping followed. The old dog leaned, trembled against Earl's leg. Christ! Earl gave the animal a shove with his knee. Ought to take you and shoot you, you old bastard. Dog, afraid, ain't useful. The old dog waddled toward the gray morning. He stretched his neck, took one step from the porch into the mist, and then another. Suddenly its body jerked. He sounded one long, howling note that curdled into a growl and flopped backward to where Earl stood. Dog song echoed from the day. This was a good old dog, lazy on its porch, but, but one to fly, flapping ears and jowls, singing into the trees and off the trail in long-legged strides, ahead of roaring trucks, charging junkers, bouncing after game, running the night, unafraid of tires, guns, or the tearing death of tooth or claw, this old dog. Now, this old bastard tucked its head and whimpered into the shack, Another thump on the back wall, another scream, more flapping from the mist, screams echoing inside the old dog simpered. Now what the hell, Earl said. The world smelled, stank a little like outhouse, something of old oil and gas, the, the way them old fish boats by Egg Harbor smelled. And something else hung on the bottom of those stinks. What the hell, Earl said. And it came... The day smelled, damn it, damn it, if it didn't, the day smelled like sex. Once he caught hold of that, Earl reeled it in. Damn, if it wasn't the biggest part of the morning, the thick odor like that place women had. He, he remembered that damn much about it all. <laughs> you old shit, he said to the hound. What good's a dog afraid of a little pussy? <laughs> the dog shuffled deeper into the shack, away from the open door. The flapping from the back sounded like a woman shaking a wet sheet for drying. Two, three wet sheet, a dozen wet sheets. Another thud and more, out of the noise from both sides of the place. A stream of birds came running, reaching for the air, big birds and small. 
With them came fox, coon, squirrel, possum, all together swarming around the shack, flowing past, over his roof, his porch, and into the fog, all away from the woods. "'Jesus Christ!' Earl said. Later, he tried to write down the sounds they made, birds so scared they forgot air had buildings and trees in it. Squirrels so frightened they'd run with fox or cat, critters as would eat them standing still or on the run, all the cries so terrible as to frighten a chase hound. The broken, flapping birds were the worst. Later, he wrote, No birds, but birds will be the last. A minute after, he calculated fish might be last to go, but he didn't bother writing it down. Earl stepped off the damn porch. Two paces, and the shack was a gray smear in the blank white day. Man can lose himself, step from his own damn porch, he said. Having said it, he realized it was true. Earl rooted inside among piles of papers, stacks of dirty dishes, pots and forks, pans and cans, through stinking clothes he'd meant to wash, the radio in pieces all over, under the yards and yards of plastic tarp. He tossed aside tools, wire, pistons and rods, rooted among boxes, bottles, engine parts. He finally found the rope, the good yellow stuff, the kind the electric men used to stay the power poles over by the highway, two hundred feet coiled neat. He tied one end to the porch post, the other around his gut. Then he stepped down and onto the sand again. Still like wading water, he thought. Wading running tide, he said. The shack disappeared behind him. Alone in the mist, he played out the rope, trudging through the giving sand to the forest. Behind, small critters still whomped his home from time to time. They cried pain, they shouted terror, then they fled. What the hell he was doing, he didn't know, but he felt the need to look. Felt he ought to be on the trail, into the woods. Whatever strangeness was here, it had come from the sky. Now it was in his patch of wood, this foggy morn. He had maybe forty, maybe fifty feet of nylon rope still on the coil, when screams, a thousand of them, echoed from the mists. Some near, some distant, the screams held a thousand terrors, all pain, all on the move toward him. A breeze stirred the sex stink a little bit. The air cleared enough to let him see the opening in the forest wall, a place darker in the gray. Through the fog it seemed a mile, seemed, but it was close. Earl squinted against the day, against his age, against disbelief. Ahead, the forest floor moved toward him. Out of the screaming woods and rustling brush, the sand rippled like waves on a still pond. In slow, slow motion, the wave front crested, breaking toward him, almost frozen, almost, but not the wave's breath came on the breeze, rotted meat and dirty sex. The sand breathed on him. It was the sand that screamed the thousand, the million tiny voices. The sand and the things the sand was eating. 
the sand said, a billion times above the hissing flow of coming tide. From the trees, Earl's dog, the other, the young one, that had been hunting yesterday, last night, when the thing came down. Now the young, the stupid animal came crawling, dragging its ass end. Earl watched the damn animal haul itself from the pines. It reached where the wave crested, then collapsed, rolled head over ass, then stopped, stuck, sinking in the rippling sand, stopped. It devoted itself to screams. From the shack, the old dog returned the call. Whole thing took a minute, and at the end, the dog was gone. For a few seconds it struggled, seemed to sink, sink slow like a boat oozing under the water. When the hound rolled over, it was dead and no longer screaming, but it continued to writhe, made lively by the action of the chewing sand, argued over by so many tiny mouths. The dog went side up first, then belly up, ribs like teeth. Earl saw no legs, no more, no more hind end and belly. The thing was body cavity and bone, spilling, unwinding guts, dissolving flesh and blood, seeping into the sand. And the sand drank. The sand ate. The dog melted like a block of ice in summer. It was summer, and soon gone. A minute. Earl wrote... Sand come from out of space, he wrote, but knew that wasn't right. Sand may be made alive by... <laughs> he held the crayon above the page of the Tom's River Sentinel. It shook. He couldn't figure what to say. What made the sand alive? He wrote... That star fucked us, sure. That seemed as good an answer as any. Fucked the earth and made it live. He was writing on the picture of the astronauts back from the moon, sitting in their little isolation trailer, talking with the president through the window, astronauts smiling. And when the morning stopped screaming, the mists cleared some. The rippling wave folded closer to Earl. He backed away, kept a good twenty or thirty feet of still earth between the living, rolling sand and his own damn self. The day had cleared enough to let him see a little. Even so, he followed the yellow rope, wound it around his arm, back to the cabin, onto his porch. He hugged his porch post, the post he'd raised in the Great Depression. The sand waved, stopped, a couple three yards from his steps. It murmured, waiting, waiting. The world stewed and hissed a pot set to simmer. He heard more than saw through the thinning fog, but the forest was moving, creaking, cracking. Trees, a few, fell. Then more. They fell, rolled, tore the brush, the brush crackling in its own dissolving ways. He pictured the pines falling, upended, rolling, sinking, eaten like his dog. The wind blew, and the fog tore to shreds around him. With the blowing wind, Earl got a little of himself eaten. A grain of sand on the wind, some grit to the eye, that 
and nothing more, nothing unusual in the barrens. He blinked, wiped the corner of his eye, like always, and then from deep inside him, the familiar pain grew new teeth. White heat screamed. It grabbed the side of his head. Fire flashed a bright needle inside his eye. One grain, but it ate fast. It ate hungry, ate fuller than he could have thought. That thinking came, was written down later. Of course, later. In the moment, the pain dropped him to his knees. He fell, hands first on his porch. By the time he'd wiped the grain away, the eye jelly was gobbled. The lid poked through, ate out, and that part of his seeing was gone. Gone for good. Later, the sand wave swept forward, slowly, running like molasses in January. It wrapped the shack. It rolled on. Later. Later, he wrapped his head in the torn parts of his last clean shirt, took to wearing the goggles he'd kept when he junked that Indian motorcycle back in 1942. He wrapped and taped himself inside the plastic tarp. That's when he wrote, Hell, there's something gotta kill you. Might as well be this. That was as true as anything he'd ever written down. Later, the car came out of the silence, banged and screamed, a strange and alien thing on metal rims, the tires eaten, gone, the engine banged near death, over-racing, coughing, threatening a stall, but kicking sand every which way, spraying the tiny teeth into the air. "'Sand eats rubber!' he yelled. <laughs> I reckon you know that, though, he said to himself. The car folks stayed put, yelling, but stayed put. Earl wore his new plastic suit and brick shoes out the door, bricks wrapped to his feet with yellow plastic rope. He whisked the windborne sand mouths off the porch with a flail of frayed tether. The car's windows were near gone, pitted and holed like cheese. Now the glass, it turns to sand, Earl yelled. Shreds of nylon tent covered the holes where the windows had gone over. Well, I guess you found that one out, too, Earl said. In the car, the people screamed. Earl couldn't see who was left. <laughs> where to go? What to do? What, for God's sakes, to do? How do we get out of here? <laughs> they all screamed at once. "'Give us gas!' someone inside yelled. "'Pour some gas and we'll take you, too!' someone yelled. Earl thought it was the man, but who knew? The yelling was so shrill. "'Sure!' Earl yelled. Well, "'I gotta charge you, though!' <laughs> he laughed at that. "'Help us! For God's sake, help us!' It was another voice. Was the woman's, maybe. Maybe the girl's. He couldn't see with his one good eye and the fading light and the pitted plastic lens of the cycle goggles. "'Where you gone?' he called across the sand. "'Where's out of here when the whole world's going over?' <laughs> "'Please!' It was a squeaky boy's voice, then again louder, the squeak rising through a scream of, "'Please!' "'Well, <laughs> the gas is there, son!' Earl pointed to the drum. It sat where it had the day before and for fifty years on its stone base. Go, 
Go help yourselves. It's a day after holiday special, he called across the clear. He felt a needle sting as a couple of pissed-off mouths nibbled at his nose. He swatted where they bit. He scraped them away, leaving a little trail of blood across his glove. Fill her up, he yelled. Couldn't help laughing at the thought. He laughed again. The family danced in the dying car, yelling to him, to themselves, to the world. Earl wondered what was going on, being decided behind those tent flaps. Who'd sacrifice? That's it, he said aloud to himself. That's it. I bet you're figuring, now, how far can we get on this tank? Or you're thinking, how long can I last? How much gas can I dip and pour till they till they eat me to the knees, huh? huh? Earl didn't figure the sausage-fingered man to give himself up for eating. Send the boy, Earl yelled. <laughs> then what, he said, but he said it quiet and to himself. He was wondering how damn desperate the folks were. He stood by to watch. Earlier, he calculated why he was uneaten. He'd built on piles of rock. Back in the Great Depression, he built his shack just right, kept sill beams off the ground, so he sat on old granite now, watching the sand eat the living earth away. Oh, it was eating the cabin now. Now, he, he couldn't miss that. He could hear it at the wood. The sand was resting, but when the wind stirred, it flew where each grain nested on something living or something once alive, a, a log, a blade of grass, or a critter. The sand ate, ate, and didn't fill. He wrote down, Nick, 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 a billion times already. Billions more to go. Earl watched through the day. And when the sun sat on the western sawtooth ridge of trees, the sand began to stir again. You're waking up for night, he wrote. The wave began to ripple, to murmur. Not a bird, not a bee, not a critter moved on earth that Earl could see. Just ground itself, gnawing, crawling on its mouths. Earl dozed downing whiskey to kill the pain in his eye, his head. He slept, not well, but hard, and he woke alone. Dog gone, he wrote. <laughs> then he laughed. Brick shoes, now that was smart, he reckoned. Keeping wind-drift sand off his floor out of the way became impossible. There was too damn much, too much wind and the sand too small. The plastic tarp he wrapped himself in wore as he walked, let some seep in, and when it came, it ate, ate on his feet. Finally, he got the notion. Put something between him and the ground, something sand didn't eat. Bricks, he figured, bricks would work. Knocked a couple off the base of his kerosene heater, and, and that was it. Fine as frog fur. <laughs> and from then to the end of the world, Earl walked, clumping, thud, thud. From his porch in sundown light, Earl kept watch. The damn car never drove off, never tried. No one got out, no one tried to fill the tank, 
the thing sat, revving every now and then, every so often. The inside screamed. Sometimes the screams were at him, and sometimes not. Every so often the car shook and shimmied as though someone inside was dancing, fighting, humping. <laughs> Sundown. The car went still. The engine chugged through the last of the light. With the crawl of shadows, it coughed once or twice, raced again, and then shuddered still. Earl listened. There was a voice inside, one. It was crying. Earl took a last sip of Jim Beam. Go on home now, he said. Go on home. And he tossed the bottle to the sand. Not light enough now to see, but he heard. Heard the whisper of the sand, the urgent chatter of the glass as it shivered into a billion parts, the parts making friends with the sand. The voice from the car kept crying. In an hour, it screamed, loud. The screams went on for a minute or two, maybe three. Earl's clock had stopped. But then the car went quiet. Later, he listened to the trees, their noises as they fell. Soon after he was gone, Earl figured, pretty soon after, he figured, the trees, they'd be gone too. Fuck em, he figured. Damn trees tried to put his eye out, tried to trip him all his years of wandering the forest. They tried to crush him when he felled them had been the mothers of splinters and burning faggots and broken chairs, and, and trees had tried to get him all his life, and they had failed. They might outlive him now, but not by much. Grass, cranberry, sphagnum moss, fern, other living shit, that'd all go down the mouths. Fuck the trees and the horse they rode in on. He wrote it down. Almost the last thing. For a second, he thought about being buried. Then he laughed. World swallows you anyway. Might as well like this, he wrote. That was the last. Earl looked up. The wind picked up, blew through the holes where once the windows were. The grain scoured the wood. He shuffled the plastic tarp around him tighter. He kept them out as long as he could. He looked to the noise above, the roof crackling like small arms fire. Pieces fell, dissolving as they fell. Through the holes, the stars shone bright. In the chomping night, he pictured the world. The whole damn world spread below him, like he was one of them astronauts. A real one. A real, for Christ's sake, astronaut, a real traveler in the outer space. He and the Sands were real astronauts. In his mind's eye, Earl saw the world. He looked down on it like the papers said the astronauts in space had done. <laughs> in his mind's eye, Earl watched Earth shrivel, die, all the living, all that was growing green and climbing, all the critters, the people, he watched it shiver and go down, rolling in the sand like that dumb young dog of his. 
He watched it all go down the tiny mouths. How many grains of sand was there? All around the world, how many tiny mouths? <laughs> from where Earl sat, wrapped in plastic, tethered to his shack, peering from his goggles, breathing slow, he saw the world reshape, flatten, in his mind's eye, looking down. Damnation! He hoped that would be the way. Everyone gone when he was gone. Folks from filthy Delphia, Buster Leak, Cap Haney, the pickers he hired in the harvest, all of them gone after. Oh, he hoped. When it came, the pain was pure lousy. Soon it ended, in just a minute, maybe two. And there you go, don't forget, copyright is Larry Santuro's. Lawrence, thank you very much for that. What a story. I think that was like, that'll be a teaching aid if anyone wants to know how to kind of write like characters. What a great character. I will put links on to Larry's site. If you pop over to the Starship Sofa site, you will find links to Larry's site and everybody else who has helped out in the sofa this week. Don't forget, copyright is Lawrence Santuru. No going out there, pinchy pinchy, and trying to make a quick book. And what a great narration by Larry as well. Thank you, Larry. Certainly made a nice up the Andy on the Starship Sofa. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you like the sofa's delights. Let me know at starshipsofa at gmail.com. Drop us an email. Do pop over to the forums and say hello there. Everything's going on. You can write a little review of this story if you liked it, if you didn't like it. If you liked anything, didn't like anything in the show, please pop it on the forums. Let everyone know. Do consider supporting the Starship Sofa with the monthly donations. £2.50 gets you all this that you've heard today and the private Starship Sanatorium feed. And, you know, if you've thought about doing it, but you haven't kind of gotten there yet, honestly, like I say, it's just by the kind generosity of everyone who kind of does this monthly donations who donates. It literally is just keeping the magazine going, the audio magazine going. Couldn't do it without that kind of help. So, please, if you're thinking about it, Now's the time to keep this bird flying high. Don't forget the website is starshipsofa.com and emails again, starshipsofa at gmail.com. So, until the next time this bird, Starship Sofa, takes to the air, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, of that erasure procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.